Welcome back, dear listeners. Today's episode is a continuation of our tale of the Little Hunchback from the Arabian Nights series. Please make yourself comfortable and enjoy the story. As long as our father lived, Alnishar was very idle. Instead of working for his bread, he was not ashamed to ask for it every evening and to support himself next day on what he had received the night before. When our father died, worn out by age, he only left 700 silver drachmas to be divided among us, which made 100 for each son. Alnaske, who had never possessed so much money in his life, was quite a puzzle to know what to do with it. After reflecting upon the matter for some time, he decided to lay it out on glasses, bottles and things of that sort, which he would buy from a wholesale merchant. Having bought his stock, he next proceeded to look out for a small shop in a good position, where he sat down at the open door, his wares being piled up in an uncovered basket in front of him, waiting for a customer among the passers-by. In this attitude, he remained seated, his eyes fixed on the basket, but his thoughts far away. Unknown to himself, he began to talk out loud, and a tailor, whose shop was next door to his, heard quite plainly what he was saying. This basket, said Alnishar to himself, has cost me a hundred drachmas all that I possess in the world. Now in selling the contents, piece by piece, I shall turn two hundred, and these hundreds I shall again lay out in glass, which will produce four hundred. By this means I shall in course of time make four thousand drachmas, which will easily double themselves. When I have got ten thousand, I will give up the glass trade and become a jeweller, and devote all my time to trading in pearls, diamonds, and other precious stones. At last, having all the wealth that heart can desire, I will buy a beautiful country house with horses and slaves, and then I will lead a merry life and entertain my friends. At my feasts, I will send for musicians and dancers from the neighbouring town to amuse my guests. In spite of my riches, I shall not, however, give up trade till I have amassed a capital of a hundred thousand drachmas, when, having become a man of much consideration, I shall request the hand of the Grand Vizier's daughter, taking care to inform the worthy father that I have heard favourable reports of her beauty and wit, and that I will pay down on our wedding day three thousand gold pieces. Should the Vizier refuse my proposal, which after all is hardly to be expected, I will seize him by the beard and drag him to my house. When I shall have married his daughter, I will give her ten of the best eunuchs that can be found for her service. Then I shall put on my most gorgeous robes and mounted on a horse with a saddle of fine gold and its trappings blazing with diamonds, followed by a train of slaves. I shall present myself at the house of the Grand Vizier, the people casting down their eyes and bowing low as I pass along. At the foot of the Grand Vizier's staircase, I shall dismount and while my servants stand in a row, to right and left, I shall ascend the stairs, at the head of which the Grand Vizier will be waiting to receive me. He will then embrace me as his son-in-law, and giving me his seat, will place himself below me. This being done, as I have every reason to expect, two of my servants will enter, each bearing a purse containing a thousand pieces of gold. One of these I shall present to him, saying, 
Here are the thousand gold pieces that I offered for your daughter's hand. And here I shall continue, holding out the second purse, are another thousand to show you that I am a man who is better than his word. After hearing of such generosity, the world will talk of nothing else. I shall return home with the same pomp as I set out, and my wife will send an officer to compliment me on my visit to her father, and I shall confer on the officer the honour of a rich dress and a handsome gift. Should she send one to me, I shall refuse it and dismiss the bearer. I shall never allow my wife to leave her rooms on any pretext whatever without my permission, and my visits to her will be marked by all the ceremony calculated to inspire respect. No establishment will be better ordered than mine, and I shall take care always to be dressed in a manner suitable to my position. In the evening, when we retire to our apartments, I shall sit in the place of honour, where I shall assume a grand demeanour and speak little, gazing straight before me, and when my wife, lovely as the full moon, stands humbly in front of my chair, I shall pretend not to see her. Then her women will say to me, Respected Lord and Master, your wife and slave is before you waiting to be noticed. She is mortified that you never deign to look her way. She is tired of standing so long. Beg her, we pray you, to be seated. Of course I shall give no signs of even hearing this speech, which will vex them mightily. They will throw themselves at my feet with lamentations, and at length I will raise my head and throw a careless glance at her. Then I shall go back to my former attitude. The women will think that I am displeased at my wife's dress and will lead her away to put on a finer one. And I, on my side, shall replace the one I am wearing with another yet more splendid. They will then return to the charge, but this time it will take much longer before they persuade me even to look at my wife. It is as well to begin on my wedding day, as I mean to go on for the rest of our lives. The next day, she will complain to her mother of the way she has been treated, which will fill my heart with joy. Her mother will come to seek me, and, kissing my hands with respect, will say, My Lord, for she could not dare to risk my anger by using the familiar title of son-in-law. My Lord, do not, I implore you, refuse to look upon my daughter or to approach her. She only lives to please you and loves you with all her soul. But I shall pay no more heed to my mother-in-law's words than I did to those of the woman. Again she will beseech me to listen to her entreaties, throwing herself this time at my feet, but all to no purpose. Then, putting a glass of wine into my wife's hand, she will say to her, There, present that to him yourself. He cannot have the cruelty to reject anything offered by so beautiful a hand. And my wife will take it and offer it to me trembling with tears in her eyes. But I shall look in the other direction. This will cause her to weep still more, and she will hold out the glass, crying, Adorable husband, never shall I cease my prayers till you have done me the favour to drink. Sick of her importunity, these words will goad me to fury. I shall dart an angry look at her and give her a sharp blow on the cheek, at the same time giving her a kick so violent that she will stagger across the room and fall onto the sofa. My brother, pursued the barber, was so much absorbed in his dreams that he actually did give a kick with his foot, which unluckily hit the basket of glass. It fell into the street and was instantly broken into a thousand pieces. 
his neighbour, the tailor, who had been listening to his visions, broke into a loud fit of laughter as he saw this sight. Wretched man, he cried. You ought to die of shame at behaving so to a young wife who has done nothing to you. You must be a brute for her tears and prayers not to touch your heart. If I were the Grand Vizier, I would order you a hundred blows from a bullock whip and would have you led round the town accompanied by a herald who should proclaim your crimes. The accident, so fatal to all his profits, had restored my brother to his senses and seeing that the mischief had been caused by his own insufferable pride, he rent his clothes and tore his hair and lamented himself so loudly that the passers-by stopped to listen. It was a Friday, so these were more numerous than usual. Some pitied Al-Nashar, others only laughed at him, but the vanity which had gone to his head had disappeared with his basket of glass, and he was loudly bewailing his folly, when a lady, evidently a person of consideration, rode by on a mule. She stopped and inquired what was the matter and why the man wept. They told her that he was a poor man who had laid out all his money on this basket of glass, which was now broken. On hearing the cause of these loud wails, the lady turned to her attendant and said to him, Give him whatever you have got with you. The man obeyed and placed in my brother's hands a purse containing 500 pieces of gold. Al-Nashar almost died of joy on receiving it. He blessed the lady a thousand times and, shutting up his shop, where he had no longer anything to do, he returned home. He was still absorbed in contemplating his good fortune when a knock came to his door, and on opening it, he found an old woman standing outside. My son, she said, I have a favour to ask of you. It is the hour of prayer, and I have not yet washed myself. Let me, I beg you, enter your house and give me water. My brother, although the old woman was a stranger to him, did not hesitate to do as she wished. He gave her a vessel of water and then went back to his place and his thoughts. And with his mind busy over his last adventure, he put his gold into a long and narrow purse, which he could easily carry in his belt. During this time, the old woman was busy over her prayers. And when she had finished, she came and prostrated herself twice before my brother and then rising called down endless blessings on his head. Observing her shabby clothes, my brother thought that her gratitude was in reality a hint that he should give her some money to buy some new ones, so he held out two pieces of gold. The old woman started back in surprise, as if she had received an insult. Good heavens, she exclaimed, what is the meaning of this? Is it possible that you take me, my lord, for one of those miserable creatures who force their way into houses to beg for alms. Take back your money. I am thankful to say I do not need it, for I belong to a beautiful lady who is very rich and gives me everything I want. My brother was not clever enough to detect that the old woman had merely refused the two pieces of money he had offered her in order to get more, but he inquired if she could procure him the pleasure of seeing this lady. Willingly, she replied, and she will be charmed to marry you and to make you the master of all her wealth. So pick up your money and follow me. Delighted at the thought that he had found so easily both a fortune and a beautiful wife, my brother asked no more questions, but concealing his purse with the money the lady had given him in the folds of his dress, he set out joyfully with his guide, 
They walked for some distance till the old woman stopped at a large house where she knocked. The door was opened by a young Greek slave and the old woman led my brother across a well-paved court into a well-furnished hall. Here she left him to inform her mistress of his presence and as the day was hot, he flung himself on a pile of cushions and took off his heavy turban. In a few minutes there entered a lady and my brother perceived at the first glance that she was even more beautiful and more richly dressed than he had expected. He rose from his seat, but the lady signed to him to sit down again and placed herself beside him. After the usual compliments had passed between them, she said, We are not comfortable here. Let us go into another room. And passing into a smaller chamber, apparently communicating with no other, she continued to talk to him for some time. Then rising hastily, she left him, saying, Stay where you are, I will come back in a moment. He waited as he was told, but instead of the lady, there entered a huge black slave with a sword in his hand. Approaching my brother with an angry countenance, he exclaimed, What business have you here? His voice and manner were so terrific that Alnishar had not strength to reply and allowed his gold to be taken from him and even sabre cuts to be inflicted on him without making any resistance. As soon as he was let go, he sank on the ground, powerless to move, though he still had possession of his senses. Thinking he was dead, the black ordered the Greek slave to bring him some salt, and between them, they rubbed it into his wounds, thus giving him acute agony. Though he had the presence of mind to give no sign of life, they then left him, and their place was taken by the old woman, who dragged him to a trap door and threw him down into a vault, filled with the bodies of murdered men. At first, the violence of his fall caused him to lose consciousness, but luckily, the salt which had been rubbed into his wounds had by its smarting preserved his life, and little by little, he regained his strength. At the end of two days, he lifted the trapdoor during the night and hid himself in the courtyard till daybreak, when he saw the old woman leave the house in search of more prey. Luckily, she did not observe him, and when she was out of sight, he stole from this nest of assassins and took refuge in my house. I dressed his wounds and tended him carefully, and when a month had passed, he was as well as ever. His one thought was how to seek revenge on that wicked old hag, and for this purpose, he had a purse made large enough to contain 500 gold pieces, but filled it instead with bits of glass. This he tied round him with his sash, and, disguising himself as an old woman, he took a sabre, which he hid under his dress. One morning, as he was hobbling through the streets, he met his old enemy prowling to see if she could find anyone to decoy. He went up to her and, imitating the voice of a woman, he said, Do you happen to have a pair of scales you could lend me? I have just come from Persia and have brought with me 500 gold pieces, and I am anxious to see if they are the proper weight. Good woman, replied the old hag, you could not have asked anyone better. My son is a money changer, and if you will follow me, he will weigh them for you himself. Only we must be quick, or he will have gone to his shop. So saying, she led the way to the same house as before, and the door was opened by the same Greek slave. Again my brother was left in the hall, and the pretend son appeared under as the black slave. Miserable crone, he said to my brother, get up and come with me and turned to lead the way to the place of murder.
Alnishar rose too, and drawing the sabre from under his dress, dealt the black such a blow on his neck that his head was severed from his body. My brother picked up the head with one hand, and seizing the body with the other, dragged it to the vault, when he threw it in and sent the head after it. The Greek slave, supposing that all had passed as usual, shortly arrived with the basin of salt. But when she beheld Alnaschar with the saber in his hand, she let the basin fall and turned to run. My brother, however, was too quick for her, and in another instant her head was rolling from her shoulders. The noise brought the old woman running to see what was the matter, and he seized her before she had time to escape. Wretch, he cried, do you know me? Who are you, my lord? She replied, trembling all over. I have never seen you before. I am he whose house you entered to offer your hypocritical prayers. Don't you remember now? She flung herself on her knees to implore mercy, but he cut her in four pieces. There remained only the lady, who was quite ignorant of all that was taking place around her. He sought her through the house, and when at last he found her, she nearly fainted with terror at the sight of him. She begged hard for life, which he was generous enough to give her, but he bade her to tell him how she had got into partnership with the abominable creatures he had just put to death. I was once, replied she, the wife of an honest merchant, and that old woman, whose wickedness I did not know, used occasionally to visit me. Madam, she said to me one day, we have a grand wedding at our house today. If you would do us the honour to be present, I am sure you would enjoy yourself. I allowed myself to be persuaded, put on my richest dress, and took a purse with a hundred pieces of gold. Once inside the doors, I was kept by force by that dreadful black, and it is now three years that I have been here to my great grief. That horrible black must have amassed great wealth, remarked my brother. Such wealth, returned she, that if you succeed in carrying it all away, it will make you rich forever. Come and let us see how much there is. She led Alnaskar into a chamber filled with coffers packed with gold, which he gazed at with an admiration he was powerless to conceal. Go, she said, and bring men to carry them away. My brother did not wait to be told twice and hurried out into the streets where he soon collected ten men. They all came back to the house, but what was his surprise to find the door open and the room with the chests of gold quite empty. The lady had been cleverer than himself and had made the best use of her time. However, he tried to console himself by removing all the beautiful furniture, which more than made up for the 500 gold pieces he had lost. Unluckily, on leaving the house, he forgot to lock the door, and the neighbours, finding the place empty, informed the police, who next morning arrested Alnishar as a thief. My brother tried to bribe them to let him off, but far from listening to him, they tied his hands, and forced him to walk between them to the presence of the judge. When they had explained to the official the cause of complaint, he asked Alnishar where he had obtained all the furniture that he had taken to his house the day before. Sir, replied Alnishgeh, I am ready to tell you the whole story, but give, I pray you, your word, that I shall run no risk of punishment. That I promise, said the judge. So my brother began at the beginning and related all his adventures, 
and how he had avenged himself on those who had betrayed him. As to the furniture, he entreated the judge at least to allow him to keep part to make up for the 500 pieces of gold which had been stolen from him. The judge, however, would say nothing about this and lost no time in sending men to fetch away all that Alnishar had taken from the house. When everything had been moved and placed under his roof, he ordered my brother to leave the town and never more to enter it on peril of his life, fearing that if he returned, he might seek justice from the caliph. Alnishar obeyed and was on his way to a neighbouring city when he fell in with a band of robbers who stripped him of his clothes and left him naked by the roadside. Hearing of his plight, I hurried after him to console him for his misfortunes and to dress him in my best robe. I then brought him back disguised, under cover of night, to my house, where I have since given him all the care I bestow on my other brothers. There now remains for me to relate to you the story of my sixth brother, whose name was Shakabak. Like the rest of us, he inherited a hundred silver drachmas from our father, which he thought was a large fortune. But through ill luck, he soon lost it all and was driven to beg. As he had a smooth tongue and good manners, he really did very well in his new profession, and he devoted himself specially to making friends with the servants in big houses so as to gain access to their masters. One day he was passing a splendid mansion with a crowd of servants lounging in the courtyard. He thought that from the appearance of the house it might yield him a rich harvest, so he entered and inquired to whom it belonged. My good man, where do you come from? replied the servant. Can't you see for yourself that it can belong to nobody but a Barmakide? For the Barmakides were famed for their liberality and generosity. My brother, hearing this, asked the porters, of whom there were several, if they would give him alms. They did not refuse, but told him politely to go in and speak to the master himself. My brother thanked them for their courtesy and entered the building which was so large that it took him some time to reach the apartments of the Barmakide. At last, in a room richly decorated with paintings, he saw an old man with a long white beard sitting on a sofa, who received him with such kindness that my brother was emboldened to make his petition. My lord, he said, you behold in me a poor man who only lives by the help of persons as rich and as generous as you. Before he could proceed further, he was stopped by the astonishment shown by the Barmakide. Is it possible, he cried, that while I am in Baghdad, a man like you should be starving? That is a state of things that must at once be put an end to. Never shall it be said that I have abandoned you, and I am sure that you, on your part, will never abandon me. My lord, answered my brother, I swear that I have not broken my fast this whole day. What? You are dying of hunger, exclaimed the Barmakide. Here, slave, bring water, that we may wash our hands before meat. No slave appeared, but my brother remarked that the Barmakide did not fail to rub his hands, as if the water had been poured over them. Then he said to my brother, Why don't you wash your hands too? And Shakabak, supposing that it was a joke on the part of the Barmakide, though he could see none himself, drew near and imitated his motion. When the Barmakide had done rubbing his hands, he raised his voice and cried, Set food before us at once, 
We are very hungry. No food was brought, but the Barmakide pretended to help himself from a dish and carry a morsel to his mouth, saying as he did so, Eat, my friend. Eat, I ask. Help yourself as freely as if you were at home. For a starving man, you seem to have a very small appetite. Excuse me, my lord, replied Shakabak, imitating his gestures as before. I really am not losing time, and I do full justice to the repast. How do you like this bread? asked the Barmakide. I find it particularly good myself. Oh, my lord, answered my brother, who beheld neither meat nor bread. Never have I tasted anything so delicious. Eat as much as you want, said the Barmakide. I bought the woman who makes it for five hundred pieces of gold, so that I might never be without it. After ordering a variety of dishes, which never came, to be placed on the table and discussing the merits of each one, the Barmakide declared that having dined so well, they would now proceed to take their wine. To this my brother at first objected, declaring that it was forbidden, but on the Barmakide insisting that it was out of the question that he should drink by himself he consented to take a little. The Barmicide, however, pretended to fill their glasses so often that my brother feigned that the wine had gone into his head and struck the Barmicide such a blow on the head that he fell to the ground. Indeed, he raised his hand to strike him a second time when the Barmicide cried out that he was mad, upon which my brother controlled himself and apologised and protested that it was all the fault of the wine he had drunk. At this, the Barmakide, instead of being angry, began to laugh and embraced him heartily. I have long been seeking, he exclaimed, a man of your description, and henceforth my house shall be yours. You have had the good grace to fall in with my humour and to pretend to eat and to drink when nothing was there. Now you shall be rewarded by a really good supper. Then he clapped his hands and all the dishes were brought that they had tasted in imagination before and during the repast. Slaves sang and played on various instruments. All the while, Shakabak was treated by the Barmicide as a familiar friend and dressed in a garment out of his own wardrobe. Twenty years passed by and my brother was still living with the Barmicide, looking after his house and managing his affairs. At the end of that time, his generous benefactor died without heirs, so all his possessions went to the prince. They even despoiled my brother, of those that rightly belonged to him. And he, now as poor as he had ever been in his life, decided to cast in his lot with a caravan of pilgrims who were on their way to Mecca. Unluckily, the caravan was attacked and pillaged by the Bedouins, and the pilgrims were taken prisoners. My brother became the slave of a man who beat him daily, hoping to drive him to offer a ransom. Although, as Shakabak pointed out, it was quite useless trouble, as his relations were as poor as himself. At length, the Bedouin grew tired of tormenting and sent him on a camel to the top of a high barren mountain where he left him to take his chance. A passing caravan on its way to Baghdad told me where he was to be found and I hurried to his rescue and brought him in a deplorable condition back to the town. This, continued the barber, is the tale I related to the Caliph, who, when I had finished, burst into fits of laughter. Well, were you called the Silent, said he. No name was ever better deserved 
but for reasons of my own, which it is not necessary to mention, I desire you to leave the town and never to come back. I had of course no choice but to obey and travelled about for several years until I heard of the death of the Caliph when I hastily returned to Baghdad, only to find that all my brothers were dead. It was at this time that I rendered to the young cripple the important service of which you have heard, and for which, as you know, he showed such profound ingratitude that he preferred rather to leave Baghdad than to run the risk of seeing me. I sought him long from place to place, but it was only today, when I expected it least, that I came across him, as much irritated with me as ever. So saying the tailor went on to relate the story of the lame man and the barber, which has already been told. When the barber, he continued, had finished his tale, we came to the conclusion that the young man had been right, when he had accused him of being a great chatterbox. However, we wished to keep him with us and share our feast, and we remained at table till the hour of afternoon prayer. Then the company broke up and I went back to work in my shop. It was during this interval that the little hunchback, half drunk already, presented himself before me, singing and playing on his drum. I took him home to amuse my wife and she invited him to supper. While eating some fish, a bone got into his throat and in spite of all we could do, he died shortly. It was all so sudden that we lost our heads and in order to divert suspicion from ourselves, we carried the body to the house of a Jewish physician. He placed it in the chamber of the purveyor and the purveyor propped it up in the street where it was thought to have been killed by the merchant. This, sire, is the story which I was obliged to tell to satisfy your highness. It is now for you to say if we deserve mercy or punishment, life or death. The Sultan of Kashgar listened with an air of pleasure which filled the tailor and his friends with hope. I must confess, he exclaimed, that I am much more interested in the stories of the barber and his brothers and of the lame man than in that of my own jester. But before I allow you all four to return to your own homes and have the corpse of the hunchback properly buried, I should like to see this barber who has earned your pardon. And as he is in this town, let an usher go with you at once in search of him. The usher and the tailor soon returned, bringing with them an old man who must have been at least 90 years of age. O oh, silent one, said the Sultan, I am told that you know many strange stories. Will you tell some of them to me? Never mind my stories for the present, replied the barber, but will your highness graciously be pleased to explain why this Jew, this Christian and this Muslim, as well as this dead body, are all here? What business is that of yours? asked the Sultan with a smile. But seeing that the barber had some reasons for his question, he commanded that the tale of the hunchback should be told him. It is certainly most surprising, cried he, when he had heard it all. But I should like to examine the body. He then knelt down and took the head on his knees, looking at it attentively. Suddenly he burst into such loud laughter that he fell right backwards, and when he had recovered himself enough to speak, he turned to the Sultan. The man is no more dead than I am, he said. Watch me. As he spoke, he drew a small case of medicines from his pocket and rubbed the neck of the hunchback with some ointment made of balsam. Next he opened the dead man's mouth 
and by the help of a pair of pincers drew the bone from his throat. At this, the hunchback sneezed, stretched himself and opened his eyes. The Sultan and all those who saw this operation did not know which to admire most, the constitution of the hunchback, who had apparently been dead for a whole night and most of one day, or the skill of the barber, whom everyone now began to look upon as a great man. His Highness desired that the history of the hunchback should be written down and placed in the archives beside that of the barber so that they might be associated in people's minds to the end of time. And he did not stop there. For in order to wipe out the memory of what they had undergone, he commanded that the tailor, the doctor, the purveyor and the merchant should each be clothed in his presence with a robe from his own wardrobe before they returned home. As for the barber, he bestowed on him a large pension and kept him near his own person. Thank you for tuning in, and if you find joy in my tales, be sure to follow my podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated.